Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 146, The Survivors. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Hey, can can we bring down the intro music just a little? It's, um, sound like it normally is. Okay, um, I'm, I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we delve deep hey, into... Hey, hey, do, could, do, do you hear that music? <laughs> I know what you're doing, there's no music. I mean, this is not... Oh, wait, wait, hold on. My bad, man. I had the wrong um, uh, thing open here. Certainly not trying to gaslight you, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank no you. problem. Hey, I'm here for you, man, maybe. Uh, 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 each week, as you were saying, each week on Mission Log, we like to take apart an episode of Star Trek, and that is each and every episode of Star Trek to see what makes it tick. This week... The Survivors. And we would love to hear your thoughts on The Survivors, on Star Trek in general, on any particular episode, whatever you want to do. Uh, Mission Log Pod is a great way to get in touch with us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. That handle again, Mission Log Pod. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call us, 323-522-5641. Scientists have proven, by the way, the best way to leave a voicemail is to call. 323-522-5641. 323-522-5641. Our email address, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of other fun stuff, is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And if I know John Champion, if you were to send some trivia his way, he might use that too. Oh, you know me too well. I, well, you know, it's 140, what is this, 146? Episode 146, uh, 146 right? 146, not including the supplemental show. Plus a few supplementals, exactly. Plus we've hung out a time or two, and, and, mm-hmm. and occasionally we talk, you know, when we're not doing this. Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm getting to know you, getting to all know right. all about you, <laughs> and getting to know a little bit more trivia. All right, cool. Well, today's episode was written by Michael Wagner. We mentioned him as a co-writer of the season opener Evolution, along with Michael Piller. Remember that he was an uncredited producer on the show, and he didn't stay very long. This is his only solo writing credit for Next Gen. It was directed by Les Landau. We've seen his work before. Uh, The location stuff was shot in Malibu over the course of one day, not to be confused with the water reclamation plant in Los Angeles that was used for justice, although kind of a similar look. Um, I want to talk here a little bit about something we don't normally talk about, which is the restored high-def version of this episode versus the original standard-def broadcast. So it was kind of interesting from time to time to check in with that and see what details were added and what was changed by the uh, digital effects team. In particular, here we have more surface detail on the planet, not just with the Enterprise in orbit, but when you're looking at the planet through the uh, Enterprise view screen, you can actually see the Uxbridge house from space in the little patch of green grass on the devastated planet. Um, There's more detail and a better fit for the matte painting of the Uxbridge house once the uh, landing party has beamed down. And um, there are definitely some more photorealistic and and more expertly rendered effects for Kevin and Rishon as we see them later in the episode. Um, Now, this was kind of a cool little uh, bit here. Picard beams down with a replicator along with Worf, and uh, and it's super cool, by the way. I want to know how you power it. If you just plug it into a wall and then, boom, you've got anything you want. Now, it's kind of a a boxy thing, sort of looks like a mini fridge, right? And it is a sci-fi prop rented from Modern Props here in Los Angeles. You can get it today for a week for about $200. It's listed as the Neutron Lab slash medical slash control room collector with chasing side lights in silver enclosure. Wait a minute. And you can rent it right now? You can right now. Dude. I'm, I'm, just, to, I'm just uh, saying, like, you know, someday, if there's yeah. an important convention that we're yeah. at, and as we record this, the 50th yeah. anniversary of Star Trek uh, is Imminent. coming up yeah, relatively soon. Yeah. Uh, certainly for the next several years, uh, the 60th will be 
around the corner at some point, <laughs> and right. we will theoretically actually still be doing this show when the 60th anniversary of Star Trek rolls around. And, and I think we might are. actually just be wrapping it up at that point, if, if, yeah. if I'm doing the calendar right in my head. 200 bucks mm-hmm. for like an actual Star Trek pop uh, prop yeah. at your booth for, for the weekend? Yeah. Oh, pal. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking maybe. That's, and then we make a yeah. few qualos because you know, have your picture taken with the reclam- with, with the, the uh, with the replicator yeah. that was delivered yeah. to the Uxbridge house. Yes. That's why I'm planting the seed now. Well, well, we'll see what happens. I say we you know, start watering that thing this minute. <laughs> Get some <laughs> right. miracle grow on that and see, you know, uh-huh. there's always a convention just around the corner, John. I'm just saying. Yeah, there yeah. is. You know, by the time we've rented it uh, that many times, we'll probably own it. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. So today's show, notable for its guest stars, uh, John Anderson as Kevin Oxbridge. Now, Anderson had been a longtime veteran of film and TV by the time this episode of Next Gen was made. He had played Abraham Lincoln three times. He appeared with Jonathan Frakes in North and South. In 1960, he was California Charlie in Psycho, he who sold a used car to Marion Crane. We didn't get to see too much of him in Psycho. Marion Crane was in a hurry. Not going to tell you why. Um, he was a fan of Rod Serling, and he appeared in four episodes of Twilight Zone, including The Old Man in the Cave and A Passage for Trumpet. Now, in his later years, he did a ton of TV, including a recurring bit as MacGyver's grandfather. His wife, Patricia Kaysen, died in February 1989, a few months before filming began on The Survivors. He stated that this was one of the most difficult jobs of his career. He served in the Coast Guard in World War II, and when he passed away in 1992, his ashes were committed to the sea. Now, Anne Haney played Rashawn Oxbridge. Haney was born in 1934 in Tennessee and dabbled just a little bit in theater. She was married to an executive from Georgia Public Television named John Haney, and he died in 1980, and she moved to L.A. by herself to start a new career as a professional actor, and it worked. She racked up a huge number of credits, primarily in TV, and in everything from uh, Wonderful World of Disney to Hill Street Blues and regular gigs on Mama's Family, Aftermath, and L.A. Law. You know what we have not seen in a while? A good old-fashioned godlike being who just wants to be left alone. Everyone, meet Kevin. Now, get off of his lawn. Prologue. The Enterprise is answering a distress call from a colony on Rana 4. It was under attack at the time of the call. Captain Picard and company are prepared to offer aid, rescue, and if necessary, fight whatever was fighting the colonists. As they approach, though, things do not look good. They're receiving no communications, and Counselor Troy says she is getting no vibes, good or otherwise, from the 11,000 colonists. A look at the planet shows the reason. Everything on the planet has been obliterated. Well, almost everything. There is that one tiny square of grass, complete with one structure, and two life forms. An away team will have to check it out. Act 1. The away team consists of Dr. Crusher. She'll tend to whatever injuries the two survivors have. Geordi, Data, Worf, and Riker. On their way to the transporter, Troy tells Picard and Crusher that she senses... human? Off the survivors? There's something else, too, but she can't put her mental finger on it. On the planet, everything looks like crap. Except for that one residential square, which looks great! You never know the rest of the planet had been destroyed. Except, of course, you can see the rest of the planet. Jordi and Data say everything seems fine. Worf's sensors show two life forms inside and one weapon, a non-working phaser... Riker decides to go knock on the door, but ends up springing a snare. This brings the attention of Kevin and his wife, Rishan. They're the Uxbridges. Kevin's got an upside-down Riker and the rest of the away team at the point of his phaser, but Rishan scolds him for his lack of hospitality. Rishan says she had been afraid that the whole Federation had been attacked the way the colony was. Kevin says the attackers, unknown to him, came in a ship so big they could see it from the ground. It tore the planet apart piece by piece. Riker wants a look inside. Kevin mildly protests until Riker says, Look, you're alive. Your house is standing. Neither of those things can be said about anything else on this planet, so please, may we look around? Rashawn offers everyone tea. Worf compliments Kevin on trying to hold everyone off with a non-working phaser. Showed unmitigated gall. And Worf admires gall. Data eyes a music box, a relic in Rashawn's family for generations. 
When it starts playing, though, Counselor Troy is apparently hearing the music on the Enterprise. Dr. Crusher says Kevin and Rashawn are fine physically. Still, Riker thinks they should come to the Enterprise. The couple declines the offer. Rashawn almost on the point of panic. Riker says, okay, but here, take my comms badge just in case. Act 2. Senior staff is talking over why Rashawn and Kevin were spared. Did they collaborate with the attackers? Did they have something the attackers wanted? We're only half listening to the conversation, but that's more than Counselor Troy can do. The song she heard earlier when Data handled the music box? It's persisting. Getting louder. Drowning out conversation. She says she's not feeling well and has to be excused. Doing a Sorkin-style walk-and-talk, Captain Picard hears from Worf that the ship that attacked the colony definitely not in the system anymore. No way, no how. Picard says, you seem pretty sure. And Worf's like, dude, sorry, Captain Dude, I will totally stake my reputation on this. In her quarters, Counselor Troy is going slightly mad, on her way to fully mad. The music will not stop. Captain Picard stops by to check on her. She says she's fine, and Picard says, look, I'm no telepath, but I don't need to be. You're in pain. Troy tells him about the music. She doesn't have a song stuck in her head. Somebody is sticking a song in her head. And yeah, it's making her crazy. Started when she was thinking about Rashawn and Kevin, on whom she still can't get a handle. The conversation is interrupted by a red alert. Moving in for the attack, that thing that Worf swore up and down could not be there. Klingon reputation, going cheap. The Enterprise tries to hail the ship, but there's no response. Unless you count the ship firing on the Enterprise. Weapons are totally weak, though. No match for Enterprise shields. Enterprise turn. It fires on the opposing ship, which turns and speeds away. The Enterprise pursues, but this is odd. The enemy ship is matching the Enterprise speed, beat for beat. Picard thinks they're being toyed with. Tell you what, let's go back to Rana 4. I want to talk with Kevin and Rashan. Act 3. Picard and Worf beam down to offer Rashan and Kevin a matter replicator. Kevin tries to interrupt, saying that they don't need such a thing, but Picard is undeterred. And besides, says Rashawn, yes we do. She invites Picard and Worf in for tea. There she tells them the couple's story. They met in their 20s, and two hours after their meeting, she asked Kevin to marry her. They came to Rana four or five years ago to fall in love all over again. And it worked. Picard asks about the attack on the colony. Rashawn says it was terrible. As for why they lived, she doesn't know. Kevin wants to know when the Enterprise will be leaving. Picard says he doesn't know. That other ship is still out there. They chased it off earlier, but who knows when or if it'll be back. Kevin assures a once again panicky Rashawn that the ship will not hurt them. Picard thinks that Kevin knows that for sure. Though he explains he doesn't know that for sure, he just doesn't want to see Rashawn panic. And no, I still don't know why we were spared when everyone else died. There was but one difference between them and the rest of the colonists. All of the other colonists fought the attackers. Kevin and Rashawn did not. Rashawn wanted to, but at Kevin's urging, she didn't. Not that that should have stopped them from being killed. Kevin thought they would be, just like everybody else. Now there's no reason for you to stay, Captain Picard, so please leave. Picard urges Rashawn to come with them, but she declines. All this time, Troy is going absolutely insane. The music is getting louder. It will not stop. She doesn't want to be sedated, though. The music will just follow her there. Dr. Crusher ends up putting Troy under, but sensors show her having the same mental reactions she was when she's awake. Now with less screaming. And again with the red alert. The big bads are back again and firing again, only this time their weapons are exponentially stronger. Shields are down on the second hit. Enterprise turn. Firing on the opponent does nothing. Enemy turn now and another direct hit. The Enterprise cannot withstand another such hit, but that's okay. They've moved, moved, moved away, and the enemy ship stopped firing. It's now taken up position around the planet. Picard says the Enterprise cannot help Kevin and Rashan, but that's fine. He doesn't think they're in danger now. Act 4. Picard and Dr. Crusher talk over Troy's condition. About the only thing left it could be is something telepathic. Picard thinks Rashan and Kevin are jamming Troy's sensing ability with the tunage. He tells Riker to keep heading away from the planet for one hour, then double back. Riker says they still want to have their shields restored, but Picard says, just do it. And this time, we're not leaving. Back at Rana 4, Picard says he's going in. Riker argues that ship could be back at any time, but Picard disagrees. That ship is not coming back until Picard is back on the Enterprise. It's protecting the couple. Now Picard needs to figure out why. On the planet, Kevin and Rashan are... 
waltzing to the music box music. Kevin's surprised to see Picard and tells him again to leave. Oh, don't worry, says Picard. I will leave, but the Enterprise is going to stay in orbit to protect you against the warship. Kevin says that's not necessary. They'll be safe. Yeah, you keep saying that. How do you know? Is it because you didn't fight? Well, let me ask you another direct question. If Rashawn were in danger, would you fight then? Kevin says no. Not even then. Whatever, says Picard. I will... Not see you later, but I will tell you this, and let me state it clearly and categorically. The Enterprise will be in orbit around this planet as long as the two of you are alive. Back aboard the Enterprise, and hey, look who's here. It's the big bad warship. It's moving on the Enterprise. Riker orders Worf to prepare weapons, though Picard calls that off. The big bads turn and take aim at the house of Kevin and Rashan. Picard orders no action. The big bads fire on the house of Kevin and Rashan, destroying it and killing them. Now Picard orders one photon torpedo fired on the enemy ship. While weapons have been completely ineffectual before, this one photon torpedo completely destroys the ship. Hey Riker, says Picard, why do we have to be here now? Riker says with Kevin and Rashawn dead and with the enemy ship obliterated, there's no need for them here. Yeah, right? Picard orders the Enterprise to a much higher orbit. He wants the ship to keep an eye on the planet for... whatever. Act 5. Three hours have passed. Nothing has happened on the planet, and Riker wants to know what's going on. Picard says he's playing a hunch. He thinks only one person survived the attack on Rana 4, not two. Not much more time passes before Kevin and Rashan's place is back on the map. By which I mean back on the planet. It's perfect. And so are they. Picard has them beamed straight to the bridge. Rashan wants to know why they've been brought there against their will. Picard says one of his crew members is going nuts, and it's Kevin's fault. He's figured some stuff out, you see. Kevin and Rashan's place did not survive the attack. It's just been remade. Just like the enemy ship. Kevin says he's sorry about Troy and he will help her. As for what will happen to him, Picard says he'll be turned over to the authorities to answer for the colony's destruction. He wants to hear the rest of the story, though, like the part about what happened to Rashan. Rashan says, what are you talking about? Picard says, this is going to come as a shock. You are totally real. To me, and to you. But you don't exist. Kevin recreated you like he did everything else. And with that, she vanishes, leaving only Kevin. So you, not so much with the human, huh? Kevin turns to energy and disappears. Worf wants to activate security, but Picard says, if you wanted us dead, we'd be dead. The captain figures Kevin will go back to the planet, but he'll help Troy first. And that's where we find him, removing the music from Troy's mind. He needed it there to keep Troy from knowing the truth. He's lived as a human for over 50 years, but he's not one. Picard shows up and says he wants the truth now. All of it. So here goes. Kevin is a Dowd, an immortal. He travels around living other lives as other races. He met Rashan, fell in love, and lived a full life. Until the attack of the Husnok, a species of hideous intelligence. Kevin could have stopped them from destroying the colony, though he did not for the same reason he did not destroy the Enterprise. He will not kill. He tried to trick the Husnok, but that didn't work. That just made them angrier, more cruel. Then, Rashan died. And Kevin went insane. He killed the Husnok. All of them. Like, look around all the galaxies you want to. All of them. He killed the Husnok. All of them. All 50 billion of them. We are not qualified to be your judges, says Picard. We have no law to fit your crime. And so he lets Kevin go to rebuild his home and let Rashan live again, confiding to the captain's log that he doesn't know whether Kevin should be praised or condemned, but he should be left alone. The end. Hey, uh, my favorite Dowd? Mm-hmm. Maureen. Maureen. Maureen yeah. Dowd, absolutely. Because she yeah. was the... I don't even remember who she is now, but I know the name. Uh, New York Times columnist. Oh, that's right. Okay. Really? Yeah. She's your favorite then? <laughs> well, she, she's the first from the. I'm partial to Kevin, honestly. I like I like oh, his I okay. like his tunic. Yeah. I like his suit. I like the uh -huh. fact that he can make uh, he can make anything he wants to. He could destroy anything he wants to. And you don't know that Maureen can't. Well, okay, okay. I think I would remember who she was if she could, but whatever. <laughs> uh, Kevin, mm -hmm. Kevin uh, Uxbridge slash Dowd, he would get along great with Armas. We should introduce them, and I don't mean Burton Armas. I mean the the creature Armas that killed. Um, oh, what was her name? I don't know. Blonde chick stood near the side. 
mm-hmm. w- was fully functional one time at least. Right. Maybe a few more. It would be I don't know. Th- I don't know that he would actually get along with Armus, honestly. Well, I mean, because Armus was needlessly cruel. Kevin was very much not cruel. I mean, they're both immortal, but I mean, Armus really couldn't do a whole lot. If you tried to step over Armus, then he could kill you. <laughs> right, yeah. And he could drag you into him, into his muck and mire, if you happen to be close enough as well. Yeah. But, you know, all they pretty much had to do was stand like 20 feet back. And Armus is like, oh, seriously, if you come over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, they both love their, uh, their self-pity. And they would both not be fun at parties. Um, right. you but I just, think if you get them together, uh, get them together, I don't, they're, I don't, I don't, they're I don't, unstoppable. I think we have to actually come back to that self-pity comment. Okay. All, All right. right. Let's do it. Hey, uh, we got an email from mm-hmm. listener. Thank you, listener. Uh, talking about the age of the actors, and not specifically in this, but in Star Trek in general. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was a very interesting comment um, because he, he said that it's weird to him that old is old in Star Trek. And, and we speculated a little bit about how old characters are meant to be mm-hmm. versus how old they really are. So in this, John Anderson, the actor, was 67 playing an 85-year-old, and Anne Haney was 55, playing 82. Mm -hmm. And we saw a little bit of this, you know, Dr. McCoy, he shows up and he's supposed to be 137 or however old. I thought it was 126. 126, sure. I I don't know why I think that, but I think it's 126. Do you remember the name of the episode? Um, Encounter at Farpoint. Very good. Well, All come right. on. It's the pilot. How do you not? But go ahead. Sorry. I have to. Um, and, and then I, I was saying to him, you know, I think we also assume that Picard is older than Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart was like 46, 47 when they started. Okay. Um, still, his point was that old isn't usually played as vibrant or something very different from uh, from what we perceive as old today. These people are in their 80s, and they definitely look older, but they, they still dance and they still get along okay by themselves. Um, so, I, but I wondered, you know, if there was some good point to that. Like, the last time we saw people who were really old, who kind of seemed somewhat vibrant, was mm-hmm. in the animated series, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Captain April. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a good point, but I thought this was maybe a little bit on that line to show that in the future, human lifespans would hopefully be dramatically older. So when we when we see old, yeah, maybe maybe an 85 in the 24th century is more like 60 something today. I but say, you, would, you would hope it'd be more like 40. You know? 85 is the new 67. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I, I would hope for better in <laughs> 300 years, but <laughs> who knows? Um, I love that we have a, a wily coyote contraption in the yard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I actually thought that was really. I thought that was very cool. Actually, yeah. That although it was kind of weird that yeah. this like you know omnipotent. Well, I, I guess he's not omnipotent, but this incredibly powerful, incredibly aged thing, and still the best thing they can come up with is the way that they you know you catch rabbits in the woods. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's the best. I mean, we're really illustrating right from the beginning that he's a he's a passive sort, right, or a conscientious yeah. sort, a conscientious objecting sort of sort. Although he does pull a gun on them, but it's a gun <laughs> that it turns out does not work. But he doesn't know that we know that, but we do know that, and so that makes it doubly interesting that he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Oh, I'll 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 bark at you, but I won't bite. Right. I thought maybe that was a thing with Rashawn. Like they, they would set rabbit traps all over the yard and then just let them go. Wow, can you can you imagine how big anything. the rabbits would have been then? I mean that's because I mean that was <laughs> right. that was a Riker sized trap that they had there. That was. That hey, was. here's a question. Do you think there was actually a Riker sized trap there before they got there? Uh, you know, I don't think so. Uh, interesting. I, yeah, I because because uh, what's his name? So. Jordy didn't yeah, see it yeah. until Riker was almost on top of it, and you would think Jordy would have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Thanks. Um, I like that Worf is cocky, mm. and, and then he's wrong, but then he's right, and then he doesn't get an apology. <laughs> he did get, well, he kind of got an apology. I mean, it, uh, it, Picard acknowledged that there was absolutely no way that Worf could have known, and, and Picard is already on to the fact that they're dealing with a, with a, with a, very powerful yeah. something at this point. I mean, he, so I think yeah. what he says to, uh, Worf is, uh, I think actually the words are there's no way you could have known. And that I think that's I think he's saying that because it is literally true. Right. There's it, absolutely it no way you could have known. So it's not an apology, but it's an acknowledgement. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Worf has another great moment. Uh four words. Good tea, nice house. Yeah. 
Oh, it's so it's so warf. <laughs> it's so, you know. I also love Patrick Stewart's face, though. Right then, because there's not. It's not like he's not resigned. Like, oh, that warf. But he's also not like, oh, that's funny. It's just <laughs> sort of like, eh, I guess we might need to talk about this at some point. <laughs> there, there's a, there's a something there's something to his face that's like ah should I I can't uh, there's I'm I'm loving Patrick Stewart more and I gotta say really quickly mm-hmm. um, could not help noticing all the racked focus in this episode and for people who don't know what racked focus means you should listen to yeah. last week's show because John actually explains what it is suffice to say that it it's looking more cinematic as we go oh, yeah. I mean it's getting it, it's it's getting much more. And the fact that they went outside for the Uxbridge house, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, it's not a huge house. It's not like a palatial yeah. estate or anything like that. Yeah. But they absolutely went outside to give you that as opposed to just landing us on a set someplace, which was uh, which was great. Right. And it's kind of funny because they, they did – I mean, not that doing a matte painting and not that doing an effect like that is an easy thing. But they, they sort of gave themselves an easy way to do it by just having this perfectly square patch of land. Yeah, you know, so you can line up the mat at a ninety degree angle, and you are done. Just here, we are going to cut out the Uxbridge yard right there. We don't yep. have to worry about being fancy with it. So I really like that. Um, right before the moment with Worf's line about the tea, Rishan is explaining how she and Kevin met at sea, mm-hmm. presumably sixty or more years ago, and Kevin was a starving student. And I thought that was interesting for two reasons because we know that in the future. Students will still eat ramen. They will still be poor. Uh, maybe it's just a rite of passage, even though we're in a post-scarcity economy. And uh, there are still <laughs> ships. There are still ships on the sea. Is that actually a punishment for wanting more than you have? Like maybe, like, maybe. like living in the Federation is so good. It's that like you want to learn. Feel like you have to do something else. It's like all right, smart guy. If you're going to go around like you know thinking <laughs> thoughts and rousing rabble well then you're gonna right. you're gonna have to miss at least one of the four meals we provide every day <laughs> <laughs> right uh, of literally anything you want exactly we have replicators yeah let's well yeah. did we have replicators yeah. i guess we did have replicators even on the enterprise or no on on the uh, on the enterprise 1701 did we have replicators we had a chef didn't we we had cooks uh yeah, on, on the one seven zero one, we we did have cooks. All right, in fact, and, we had the and that was right. And we did was... have a food dispenser, so that would have been yeah, you know, maybe slightly before. So I figure it's like a, I figure it's like an automat. But here's the thing: so that was yeah. that was like thirty years before Kevin and Rashawn met, mm-hmm. and suddenly I feel like we've gone far too geeky, even for us. <laughs> right, we're very concerned about what he ate as a kid. Well, I remember how upset the Gorgon was, you know, about people mm-hmm. telling them where they were going to go, what they were going to do, where they were going to eat, and so maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe that was part of the starvation thing that happened to Kevin. <sighs> yeah. right. please, please go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I did wonder where were the other Dowd and, mm. and how they're getting along, and do they talk to each other? Mm-hmm. You know, do they just scatter themselves across the universe? Because if they are as powerful as they are, I kept thinking they were Q-ish, Q-like, Q-esque, mm. and that um, they would at least be able to get in touch relatively easily. Do you think they? Do you think the Metreon are actually Dowd? I mean, do you think the Metreon wasn't Dowd? Do you think they're the same thing? Because they strike me as kind of similar, except the Metreon sort of like had their own place and stayed where they were. Yeah, and they seem to like to mess with people. Here's the thing, though. So, like, do the Dowd travel the galaxies doing this, or does this one Dowd travel the galaxy doing that? Well, that's the thing. I, I kind of wondered if he, he was just sort of not fitting in with the other Dowd, and that's why he's on a ship as a starving student in yeah. his 20s, even though he could be anything he wants to be. Um, so maybe maybe being a Dowd is not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe he needed some different experience. Yeah, maybe you know? so. Yeah. And uh, Ken, I'm glad to see that in the long tradition of putting traffic cones around a planet, <laughs> we got another planet surrounded by traffic cones. Not unlike Counselor Troy, I now have a song stuck in my circuits. Where have all the who's not gone? Long time passing. Where have all the who's not gone? Long time ago. Where have all the who's not gone? When 
when we first started watching this episode, mm-hmm. I have to admit that I didn't remember it. And I truly was watching it with a fresh set of eyes. Okay. And and the first time through, I started taking notes. And it's funny because I was taking an entirely different set of notes when I first started watching this. Totally different stuff. I was interested in two things. I was interested in the fact that here's another colony with more colonists who don't want to leave, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they had just been absolutely wrecked by who knows what. And I kept thinking, what is it? Is it Borg? Is it Romulan? What, what did this? You know? right. And then we could get into our whole conversation again about why, why are people colonists in the future? What do they want? And then why do they stay where they are when they know better? Right. They should know better. So I, I went on a whole line of notes about that. And, and then I started taking notes about the idea the, of these being octogenarians who maybe wouldn't be able to take care of themselves at some point. Mm-hmm. And were we going to do a thing about aging? Um, but we didn't. So never mind <laughs> any of that. Honestly, the, the most relevatory thing in all of that that you just said, you actually take notes the first time you watch. I do, yeah. See, I, I don't want to do the thing where I go down the wrong way. I try to, if it's an episode I remember or an episode I don't, I try to actually just sit and watch it. Yeah. And, like, no notes at all because I don't want to, basically I'm going to try to second guess it as it goes. Right, and right. Then, well, and, and then I get drunk. No. Yeah, well, well no. you have to. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, I mean, I actually, I, I just sort of watch the whole thing and then I'll usually sit with it for about a day and see, okay, is anything presenting itself yet? And yeah. then, uh, you know, then I'll watch it a second and third time, perhaps. Uh, second yeah. time, definitely. Third time, uh, often. And then um, then I make the notes, you know, after that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I usually try to do one pass while I'm watching it fresh, just so if I have an idea that I think is interesting, regardless if you or the listeners think it's interesting, at mm-hmm. least I've got it down. Okay. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's my thing. They're they're not detailed, they're not super thoughtful. But I was I was sort of watching this, going, ooh, they're they're going to go this direction. So maybe that'll be the thing that we talk about. Nope, yeah. nope, nope, not at all. Um, but there were many fascinating things here, and uh, and first off is the guilt that Dowd Kevin Oxbridge carries around, and there were so many parallels. I was thinking of to to try to explore this because he could be a stand-in. For, you know, insert whatever archetype you want. You know, somebody on a jury who doubted the outcome of a trial or or he'd be a soldier who did things he regretted or he could be a police officer who doubted a call that he made. I, I thought all of this was it was an interesting way for the viewer to be able to put themselves in the shoes of of doubt, even if just for a little bit, you know, just to have this doubt and this regret. Um But what it led me to was thinking about this in the terms of kind of the the moral and personal cost of capital punishment. So a couple of weeks ago, I heard a part of a radio interview that Penn Jillette of Penn & Teller was doing. And it was regarding some presidential campaign politics. Honestly, the details of which do not matter since they won't be relevant months or years from now, and hopefully people are still discovering the show. But the point is, he was doing this interview. And what he was saying in the course of the interview, and and it's a good argument about capital punishment because it's one he has made before in other contexts, is that individuals sometimes react terribly. And what we ask of ourselves as a group or as an institution is to be better And this is a conversation we've had over and over on Mission Log, is that Star Trek has very often had this position of, well, what if we're better? What if it's the Corvamite maneuver and we have one option, but then the other option is to be better? So he was saying, you know, we asked our politicians and our representatives to be better than the terrible gut reactions that we might have as individuals. Because once you say you're representing something, you, you simply have to. And when we're wronged, sometimes in in profound and horrific ways, we react with revenge. But instead, we have courts and we have processes to help us be better than that, than than to be better than revenge. Now, Dowd is a character who didn't have an army that could stop his attackers, and he didn't have a court that could right the wrong, in some sense, you know, not, not, not fix it, but at least carry out some form of justice. So then we're left with this interesting conundrum. What was he supposed to do? 
and and did he exhaust every peaceful option? I think maybe that's the thing that I got stuck on because here's this being with incredible power and honestly, what would be the cost if he did something? Well, there are several. I feel like we need to go back, actually. I wish we knew a little bit more about his powers because he was obviously able to destroy the Enterprise. And this is something that Picard acknowledges, right? Sure, yeah. Well, yeah. if he's got the ability to destroy, then does he not have the ability to protect? I mean, we know he can create. We know he can destroy. Why doesn't he create a shield that yeah. protects the entire planet? Or maybe that's, that's a, maybe that's asking a little too much. Maybe that's a little too big. Yeah. Did he exhaust every peaceful option? Um, he didn't fight. This this was not about fixing a wrong. This was about this was about revenge, as you say. Yeah. So did yeah. he exhaust every peaceful option? I personally, I don't think so. I mean, he was not able to talk to the Husnock, or didn't talk to the Husnock. I guess he tried to fool them, but they figured out that he was trying to fool them, and so that made them more angry, and that made them more cruel. Um, it doesn't feel to me like this is really about that whole process, though, unless you want to say, so, conscience is objection, good thing or bad thing, and are there some circumstances where it would be better not to be that way or some circumstances where it would be worse? I mean, it, it really more is about – it feels to me in a way that it's more about falling from your, your sort of high morals. I'll tell you what – when I don't mean high morals. Like, I'm not trying to be judgmental about him. I'm just saying he, he has this very clear idea of who he is and what he is, and then this thing that he has – feared the most in his life happens and suddenly he's not that anymore for just a minute yeah for yeah. even less than a minute he's not that thing but for that one minute that he lets go boy howdy does he let go 50 billion yeah. who's knock and probably they weren't all as evil as the ones that attacked the colony but who knows right. i'll well, tell you and, go ahead i was going to say you know it uh, all for all this time so this is an immortal being he mm -hmm. says yes he's been around for for thousands of centuries right um but he's lived under this oath that he doesn't kill. And and then you have to wonder, well, is he actually morally better because he doesn't kill when maybe that would have been the moral option at some point? You know, maybe just fighting back would have been the more moral option to save the people who are on the colony, to fight back against the attackers specifically, yeah, but I, not act out in rage and take on the entire race. See, I don't think though. I don't think this is actually an examination of that. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting uh, question to bring up, but I didn't feel like he was more moral because he didn't kill. I felt like it's sort of like what I've always said. Well, what I've always said, what I've said since basically the first year that we've done this show, end of the yeah. first year that we've done this show about the Prime Directive. I don't think the Prime Directive is a thing. I don't care about the Prime Directive. What the Prime Directive is, is it's standing in for, we have this set of morals, and we're going to live by this set of morals. And in this case, yeah. it happens to be the Prime Directive, but really it's just a stand-in for a code, a way of acting. And this guy has a code, he has a way of acting, and, and that falls apart. And, and you could, yeah. I mean, it would be a little bit more difficult, obviously, because you'd have a harder time buying it or believing it. Or maybe you wouldn't. What was the one, um, ah... Ah, the one with the Klingons, the one with uh, Worf and the other three Klingons that come and they want to take over the Enterprise. They want to start a race war oh, between the Klingons. Oh, uh, yeah, Heart, Heart of Glory. Heart of yeah. Glory. Uh, yeah. I mean, sort of like Heart of Glory. I mean, their whole thing is we're fighters. And, and, and yet you still get some of the same – you could get some of the same sort of questions raised by this constant belief in constant fighting as opposed to this constant belief in constant peace. I mean, it's really just about – it's about having a code and then what happens when you try to live by it constantly and then what happens when you fall off at a bet. Yeah. I got to say the thing that the thing that this episode brought up for me, I found myself again wishing that Picard had turned around and without even thinking destroyed Armas. Mm. Because that's who Kevin is. That's yeah. who Kevin is here. Picard has this, you know, has this team and he's got the, he's got this crew. And so far, with the exception of an occasional red shirt or a, I guess a gold shirt in next gen. But I mean, with the exception of occasional cannon fodder, he's not lost anybody. He loses a member of his senior staff. And honestly, I wish without even thinking he had blown it up and then had had to deal with that. And this is coming from the guy who always wants the Federation to be perfect, as Gene Roddenberry <laughs> wanted, right? If you're going to do that kind of thing, I, I wish Picard had done that. And that would have actually made what happened between uh, Picard and Kevin here even more interesting. Because, because I mean, it's it's basically the same story. The Husnucker Armus and, and Kevin is Picard. And he loses somebody and he loses it. And he, and he just, he kills them all. Um, which I found, I found interesting. 
Well, well, let's think about that for a second. So if if Picard had killed Kevin, just as, uh, or Dowd, uh, as you say that Picard could have killed Armas. Oh, there's no I reason mean, for Picard to kill Kevin. No, well, there is no punishment for Kevin. I mean, as right. as we, yeah, as we see. Well, no, I mean, I'm not, okay. There's I, no conceivable punishment for for Kevin. Well, I want I, I want to let you finish your question, but just so I'm just so I'm clear, I see yeah, yeah. the position that Picard was in with Armas as the same as the position that Kevin was in with the Husnock. I don't. I mean, except that obviously Picard was not in love with with um, mm-hmm. what's her name? You know, stood back there where Worf stands now. I, yeah. Picard was not in love with her, but I, I feel like they were in the exact same situation. Picard had the power of life and death over Armas. Picard chose, as he is wont to do, to not kill Armas. Um, Kevin well, they, had they the power of life the and death. Yeah. Well, they did set up the cones. That's true. Yeah. And Kevin did not do that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. What was your question, though? I apologize. So, so you're look, you're you're positing a situation where Picard decides eh, Kevin's got to die. Yeah, but uh, I mean, because I, I think I know where this is going to go. Because I think you have a note on it. But uh, you know, Kirk, Kirk would have talked this thing to death. Kirk would have talked Kevin to death to say, "Okay, you, you have gone against everything that you say you believe in. Um, you say that you don't kill, and yet you killed. You, mm-hmm. you wiped out uh, a whole race of beings, and probably a lot of the good ones who had no idea that." some of their other numbers were wiping out this little colony of 11,000 people. Mm -hmm. So you don't deserve to live. If you truly are who you say you are, then you don't deserve to live. And then Kevin would like sort of like an analog version of uh, a word jujitsu on a computer. Would have talked to him totally discorporating himself. Totally. Interesting. That's an interesting idea. And then, yeah, then he would have seen Kevin disintegrate himself. (laughs) <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's an interesting idea no that wasn't the Kirk note that I had the Kirk note that I had was no? there's no way that Kirk would let uh, Kevin go back to living his um, his pretend life with uh, with Rashawn mm. but but mm. you okay so, so yeah I take it another reading, step well we're yeah. reading each other's notes we're not reading each yeah, other's notes so, so there's this whole other thing that's going on here um, yeah. with that who the heck is Kevin living with at this point he is living with a manifestation out of his mind right yeah. Oh, okay, good then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought about Minuet, because here's the thing. Of course. Um, so this guy has this perfect love, right? Yeah. Kevin has Rashawn, and he absolutely loves her. She is just, I mean, she is just the woman for him. Absolutely perfect. Eh, except for the part where she wanted to go fight the colonist. Ah, but here's the thing. She didn't. I mean, she did. In reality, he admits that. Picard's like, oh, so the worst thing that could have possibly happened to you happened to you. Rashawn went off to fight with the rest of the colonists, and she died. Right? And I kept getting confused about this. I kept thinking, as was you know, kind of indicated by Kevin's cover story, he lived because he didn't fight. That's not true. He lived because he cannot die. Which yeah. actually brings up a question, then, could Kirk talk him into offing himself? Because there's no indication. I mean, he actually says at one point, then Rashawn died, and he sits down, he puts his hands in his, uh, head in his hand and says, uh, that I could die with her. Yeah. I mean, I don't get the sense that he will live forever. I get the sense that he cannot die, which is kind of different, right? Interesting. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, you, know, you know, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? Um, <laughs> you know, is... is uh, is Kevin Dowd powerful enough that uh, he could actually kill himself? Right. Which you know? indication seems to be that no, he could not because he's sitting there wishing that he could and he can't. See, I think that just like Kirk could uh, could talk uh, Landrew into exploding, we would see smoke pouring out of Kevin's ears. Or yeah, something. I see. Now you're just being funny. But I gotta, I gotta yeah. go with this other thing really quickly, though. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He admits that Rashawn did fight. In this whole thing with Picard, he admits that Rashawn did fight. However, Rashawn 2.0 or you know 2.1, whichever one we're up to at this point because he keeps <laughs> right, recreating right. them, she remembers not fighting, just like Kevin. Yeah. And this is why I bring up the question, who is it that Kevin is living with now? Is he living with Rashawn or is he living with his idealized Rashawn? And then I got to know, where is that in relation to Minuet? Yeah. Because cause Minuet, maybe being written by the Binars at that point, maybe has enough machine um, manufactured intelligence that she's able to go ahead and build on her own. Yes, she was built for Riker, but she's not built by Riker. Um, she comes with a certain je ne sais quoi, which seems yeah. appropriate for Minuet. Um, Kevin now is just making up Rashawn as he goes, it seems. And that's beautiful and sad 
and I kind of actually want to hear their conversations in 30 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> does he let her in on the secret at some point? It's also really fascinating. So does she stop existing because she no longer believes in her own existence, or does Kevin just stop with the charade at that point? When Picard says to you, look, I can, I can touch you, I can smell you, I can see you, but you don't exist. And then she's gone. Mm-hmm. Was it Kevin that did that? Or was it, was it what, like, did she sort of, was that his Kirk moment with her? Like, yeah, you're, yeah. Not, you're not real. And so then she actually stops being real because she doesn't believe she's real anymore. So she's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I, hmm. hmm. I don't know how to answer yeah. that. Yeah. Well, well you, you know, I, I wondered <laughs> if that was, it, it doesn't seem like a punishment. Um, unless you check back with them in 30 years or 50 years or a thousand years mm-hmm. when Kevin has exhausted everything that he can come up with to make Rashan into. Mm-hmm. Because, again, he, he's tweaking the formula. He's tweaking the programming. Now, this is the Rashan who didn't fight. Now, this is the Rashan who, you know, prefers this waltz instead of that, that waltz. This right. is the Rashan who doesn't burn the tea, you know? Yeah. So he's it's almost a way of saying like well go to your room okay fine i've got an xbox i got a computer i got a phone i've got everything in my room that i could possibly want for the right. next hundred years yeah hundred. well and that's i mean i guess that's that's kind of true i and there's there are a couple of things that i'm wondering mm-hmm. and i want to come back i know there's one question down here at the bottom and i kind of want to end with that one but should yeah. we talk about um acceptable levels of cruelty because sure. this whole time, Troy is being driven insane. Yeah. And she's being driven insane by Kevin. And Kevin yeah. may feel great about the fact that he's not killing anyone. I think, again, I go back to Armis. I'm not sure that what Picard did was nice to Armis. I'm not saying it's Picard's nice to be, I mean, Picard's job to be nice to his enemies. But, I mean, we all say, oh, no, he would never kill Armis. That would just be the worst thing he could possibly do. So instead, this creature... That, that craves contact, that has been made mm-hmm. so bitter by lack of contact that he has nothing now but bile and ooze and destruction when you encounter him, Picard sets up the cones around him so that nobody's ever going to talk to him again. Is that yeah. actually better than killing him? Or is that worse than killing him? I don't really know the answer to that. But then, great that Kevin gets to feel so good that he didn't kill anyone. All he did instead was make someone live in hell. Yeah, right. Now, granted, it was only for a while. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's only for a little bit, but let's bear in mind, this is not like beacon technology, right? The Enterprise gets really far away from that planet, and Troy is still really insane because that music is still really in her head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is that a better thing? uh, Well, Eh. probably not. (laughs) Except that she does get to recover from it. That's the one thing. She does, yeah. It's like they say in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I mean, it's 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 the part, it's the in a box part that bothers you. But you'd rather yeah. be in a box than not in a box because then any moment somebody might come along and knock on the box and say, "Hey, you, what's your name? Come out yeah. of there!" Right. I mean, maybe it's better. Maybe it's better that she was just you know driven insane for who knows how long that would have gone if they had not <laughs> called Kevin on the ruse. It's yeah, hmm. yeah. But you know, <laughs> Kevin Kevin has the power to end that, and Kevin did end that. Yes, so, that's you know, true. It, it, Kevin certainly has a conscience and he has feeling and he understands the the the, the lives of people around him. Mm. So, you know, he's he's got that. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got that going for him, which is yeah. Great. yeah. Yeah. All right, so then let's do let's do the one last let's do the one last bit. Sure. Would yeah. would so it looked to me like Kevin was going to go along with whatever Picard said. Yeah. Do you agree? I do. Okay, so Kevin says, I, that, yeah. I want to know what you're going to do with me when this is all over. And Picard's like, I'm going to turn you over to the authorities. Yeah. And then once he finds out what's really going on, Picard's like, yeah, we, we got nothing for you. Go away. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it. If Picard had said, no, 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 you stay this 82-year-old man that you are, or 85-year-old man that you are, and you're going to the brig, would Kevin have gone along with that? Or would Kevin have gone along with that for a while? Or would Kevin have been like, really? Because you know I could actually crush you like a bug. Yeah, well, again, what would be the point? So he he goes into the brig for 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure, that may even be a long time to him. Mm -hmm. But then what's different when he comes out at the other end? He he already knows that what he did was unconscionable. Mm -hmm. He already is sort of 
kind of punishing himself, but kind of not punishing himself. Just, right. just sort of, you know, creating this, creating this inner fantasy life. It's sort of like somebody stuck in solitary confinement, but creating this inner life to be able to somehow deal with the the, the anguish of being there. So, th- there is no good answer to this, which is kind of the interesting thing about the episode. You know, um, how how much self pity do we expect out of him exactly? How, how do you quantify that? And and who would we be to ask Dowd to do something even beyond wallowing in that self pity or or play, sort of playing the game of putting him in the brig? Because mm-hmm. we know at that point it's just theater. It's not a. It's not an actual thing. Um, well, except it is an actual thing because yes, he could go outside, but he he is. If if he submits at that point, he is choosing to live by the rules of a society that has been wronged. He feels like I mean, obviously he can't answer to the. I keep forgetting the, the Hoosnock. He obviously can't answer the Hoosnock because he's killed them all. But yeah. he does understand that what he did was wrong, and so he feels he does have to submit to somebody to answer to that. This is going to sound crazy, and I apologize, but it's like the movie Hancock. Do you see the mm. movie Hancock, the one with, yeah, uh, with Will yeah. Smith? Yeah. I love that movie. I thought that movie was just a lot of fun on so many levels. But, but the thing that Hancock did to let everyone know that he was now with them was he went to jail. And he's a superhero. Well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. But for all (laughs) intents and purposes, he's a superhero. He can fly. He can bust through things. He can break whatever he wants to. But because in doing his good deeds, he's caused so much destruction, he's actually wanted by the law. So he goes to jail. And he willingly submits to going to jail. And he stays in jail until somebody comes and says, Hancock, we need your help. Thank you very much for what you've done. We now understand you're on our side. So guess what? We need your help, and he goes to it. Maybe that's what Kevin was trying to do. Or maybe Kevin just, like, maybe he's so racked by his own turmoil that he'll go ahead and submit to whatever anybody else says. And, yeah, it's kind of a sham because he could always walk away, except it's not a sham because if he chose to not walk away, if he stayed for the 100, 500, 1,000, 10,000 years that was prescribed, then he's obviously showing, I guess, good faith would be the best way to put it. As the Enterprise leaves Kevin in his own private music box, what messages, morals, and meanings are we able to take away with us? Ken, the survivors, here's where we get to wrap it up for for you and for me and for our listening audience. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, does the episode, as a production, does the episode hold up? Well, let me back up a little bit. There was one other thing that I meant to mention last segment. It was something I think you actually brought up in the first. Or no, you brought it up after after the recap. You said that Armis and Kevin should get together because they they, they share a similar self-pity. Yeah. Armis has been wherever he's been for a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise is answering the call from the colony. So we got to figure that what happened to Kevin happened less than a week ago. Yeah. Give Kevin some time. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay. They're not, they're not, he and Armas are not quite on that same level. Now, I apologize. I just wanted to be sure and throw that in because it was a point that I, I said, let's come back to that. And I didn't. And then, you know, that's going to start email. So. How much time is appropriate for uh, for killing fifty billion uh, people? No, I'm I'm saying give him some time to get over his grief. I mean, you're okay. saying you're saying that he and Armas are similar as far as their self pity. Well, they're similar in that they share self pity, but Armas has had a very long time to deal with his. Maybe he could have, you know, made a little goopy friend out of part of himself that would have, you know, gotten him through the lean times. Kevin, on the other hand, his wife, for all intents and purposes, just died. Yeah. I mean, because the Enterprise is racing there to try to save whoever's left. So obviously right. they didn't get this call like six months ago, a year ago, or anything like that. Sure. Um, no, I'm sorry. To your question, does the episode hold up? I think so. I At first, I found it a little plodding. Mm-hmm. But then after watching it a second and the third time, I actually was like, okay, all of these steps have to happen because we have to watch uh, Picard go through this sort of Columbo thing. And it's sort of a Columbo episode. It really yeah. kind of is. I mean, he leaves, or he's starting to leave. He's like, uh, one, one more thing. <laughs> right. You know, right. and he's like, and then he's gone, then he yeah. comes back, and he's like, you're a bad penny, Captain Columbo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, 
I yeah, I mean, again, it's just a better looking production in season three than it has been in either season one or two. And I'd imagine I'm going to get over that at some point. But every time I see something neat on the screen now, I'm like, wow, that's a really neat thing I'm seeing on the screen. The fact that they're using the camera in a different way or the fact they're, you know, racking focus or the fact that they're yeah. going outside. Um, in all of those respects, I think it works. Um, it's great to have guest stars who are not jerks. I will grant you, Kevin was not necessarily the best of the Hoosnock, but it's not like having another admiral on board or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, personally, I think I think as a production, uh, this episode works well. There are no stupid outfits. <laughs> there's not a there's not an outlandish house. I mean, I, I feel like the thing works. What about you? Uh, speaking of outfits, and, and not to say that this is stupid, but uh, yeah, we do have a change of wardrobe for Deanna Troy. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you have uh, Apple Music or Spotify, just start playing Depeche Mode's Blue Dress now. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, as a production, I, I gave it a kind of. Like really? I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence. It, it pains me, actually, to give it anything less than a glowing review because – Everything is there. It kept my interest, and I kept trying to figure out where they were going with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but plotting, there, there's that word. You and I had the same note. It kind of plods along. And I really don't like how Picard just kind of figures it out because it is the Columbo moment. You know, um, now it is fun to go back and rewatch it mm-hmm. and watch John Anderson and say, okay, so when he's saying this, he really knows that this other thing happened. So maybe you, you get a little more out of it on right. second viewing than you do on the first. Right. Um, you know, the problem is maybe I wanted it to be so much better because I think the ideas are so interesting to explore. Mm-hmm. I love the guest stars. I love that the episode has an emotional heart. Um, I just don't think it's spectacular, you know. I, hmm. I, I think it, it gets really good. It's really, really good. But you know, as a production, the pacing, etc., uh, I wasn't over the moon with it. That's fascinating to me because this honestly reminds me more of TOS mm-hmm. than yeah. any other episode I think we've seen so far. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You would agree yeah. with that, and yet, yeah, yeah. And, and yet you're only going to be meh on it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm meh to good. <laughs> you know, you know. I'm 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 positively meh. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is kind of what you're saying, I think. Yeah. No, I, right. I here's the thing. Like I said, it, it, I I sort of have been struggling with this to give it anything less than an oh wow, this is incredible. But again, mm. it's just sort of production stuff and pacing, and then the Picard moment of just hmm, I've got a hunch that. Didn't totally see even that it. worked for me though because he let them be destroyed, mm-hmm. and and he doesn't even know for certain that they weren't destroyed. He thinks they're probably not destroyed. He thinks he knows what's going on, but he plays a wild hunch at that point. Uh, the ship is turning and firing at those. Uh, it, it's aiming its weapons at those unprotected people. Yep, it's it's powering up. It's what? Yep, it just killed them. I'll be in yeah. the ready room. It, it, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's. But I guess I said, is Picard really a wild hunch kind of a guy? Well, it's um, after the third time, I would think maybe. I mean, he's been yeah. he's gone through everything. He's like, well, that's weird. Well, that is also mm-hmm. weird. Okay, well, now this is all too weird. You know, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think those people can die. Let's find out. <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but yeah. I mean, again, there's well, I don't know. I apologize. I mean, hey, you know what? Your your take on this episode is your take on this episode. I won't try to talk you out of it. I'm just I'm surprised. I'll put it that way. Yeah, what about enough. the uh, what fair about enough. the messages and such? Well, I I don't know that the we've talked about the save the whales moment or you see Timmy moment, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that's in here. But I do love the ideas that are here. We we have a really interesting conundrum here uh, with what is a appropriate punishment when we can't even conceive of the crime mm-hmm. you know would, would we simply let someone live in exile if they committed genocide on earth well we'll know <laughs> you know um <laughs> but i was fascinated by the um kind of the moral idea and that, that's why i talked about it in the previous segment of um w- how do we, uh, I think, as individuals identify with somebody who acts out in rage, who acts out in passion, um, can't be controlled because we, we weren't there. Nobody was there to control him, and, and he couldn't be controlled even if they tried because he has all the power of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
this is kind of one of those Star Trek moments where you say, okay, well, yeah, he could do that. He has done it. Um, how do we deal with the aftermath of that? And how do we make sure that, well, we don't act in fits of rage when things don't go our way? Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting point. I did have one really quick idea. So let's say Picard says, yeah. no, 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 you're going to answer the authorities. And Picard takes him in and he's like, he is, so he, he annihilated 50 billion people. And he's like, my God, 50 billion people. What, the Romulans, the Klingons? No, the Who's not. The Who? The Who's not. <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're the race of people that he... Well, that, yeah. he, that he says he destroyed. Hmm. Now that you mention it, <laughs> right. might have to let him go on a technicality. Now that I think about it, because right. there are no who's not to ask. Well, how many of you were you or were there? Because they just don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 brought him back. Brought him yeah, back. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Here they are, the who's not, ladies Sean, and gentlemen. Brought back the who's not. Yeah, yeah, all of them. Um, there was one message that I kind of got, and it's not an overriding message. It's not a... It's not a there's no you see to me to it, but I mean, there certainly is a little bit about hubris. There's, certain, there's a tiny bit about pride. Worf's like, dude, there's not another ship anywhere around here. I would stake my reputation on it. Oh, well, maybe except for that ship. Then you got Kevin going through, you know, his thousands of years and all the galaxies going, man, I, just, I would not kill. No way. That is just absolutely the wrong. Well, okay, these guys, but that's it. Only those 50 billion. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain. And and Picard, Picard is even an interesting offset to that. He is not going. He is not, again, not to liken him to Kirk, and certainly not to bash Kirk. But Kirk would have said, "No, no, no. Those people down there on that planet are doing something. I'm going to prove it to you, Spock. We're going to yeah. stand here and let them get exploded. But I promise you, they'll be back or anything like that." And Picard's like, "Man, I hope I'm right about this because that's going to look bad otherwise." Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's he's he thinks he knows, but he's not. He's not walking around like Kevin saying, I would never. He's not walking around like like, uh, like Worf saying, I'm absolutely certain. Picard's like, man, eh, it seems right. I sure hope so. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like an overriding message, like I say, but it was one thing that I sort of thought was an interesting uh, kind of thread that you could pull through it if you wanted to. Well, it is interesting. Uh, the idea that um, Star Trek is a show that very often has said – Violence is not the answer. To kill is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even if it's in this sort of quasi-militaristic setting where you have things like phasers and photon torpedoes and all of that. Um, And then here's a guy who says that he doesn't kill and doesn't kill until it becomes personal, until it becomes revenge. Then he acts totally inappropriately. So I go back to this original thing of would it have been more right – for him to wipe out the however many hundreds or maybe thousands of Husnak who were there in the moment destroying the colony. And he expresses his power that way just to save the people who were there. And you kind of can keep pulling on that thread to say, well, is it more right that he kill a few hundred or a few thousand Husnak and save the colony than it is to kill the 50 billion who had nothing to do with destroying the colony? Um, or, or is he still – is it just acting out of self-interest? You know, it, either way you slice it, we can say that killing is wrong right. for sure. Um, but is is one answer, is one version of that more moral than the other? Yeah, um, again, I don't really feel like that's the whole point though. I mean I, I feel like the the point is actually just about – how he reacted when things became personal, whether that was sure. about I never sure. kill or I always kill. I mean, no matter yeah. which one it was, there's a there's yeah, an episode yeah. that I want to reference. It's coming up in like two seasons, so I can't do it right now. But <laughs> but I mean, it's you know sometimes sometimes people come to you and you say, well, you absolutely shouldn't kill, and you certainly shouldn't have killed that time. And other times people come to you and say, you know, sometimes it's okay to kill, and you really should have killed that one time in particular. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. It's, it would be easy to say that it's a it's a thing about conscience's objection or about when is killing appropriate because I mean that's certainly the layer that's over this but I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like with with uh, with a little bit of work you could actually rewrite it so that it has nothing to do with killing and yet you still end up with the same sort of moral conundrum except that you know killing is sort of like the ultimate ultimate crime the ultimate sin it's it's I mean killing is is top of the heap as far as bad things you can do of so course, it's going to yeah. be kind of hard to write something that's going to make that worse oh I can actually think of one thing though and I won't say it out loud. But I mean, there are some. I mean, there are ways to rewrite it so that you have uh, kind of a similar theme. I think even even uh, death not included there. That's right. what I'll say. 
and does all that hold up? Well, we can't really seem to decide on one central message, so... No. no. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> does that sound right? It does to me, Ken. Oh, fantastic. You know what sounds right to me, John? What's that? Letting people know that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at roddenberry.com. Uh, Roddenberry.com, by the way, got a ton of fun stuff to check out and a ton of interesting stuff to check out, too. And yes, I will admit that some of the stuff there is not fun, but I'll bet, you know, your fun to not fun ratio got to be at least 50-50, maybe 60-40. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion. Also, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next weekend, we will be back. Who watches The Watchers? Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Though the precedent was set by the wizard Tim, and Emperor Todd, Kevin, just seems like a strange name for a godlike being. I would have gone with the name, Eddie and transmission. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.